Welcome to the second series of the podcast, Rewired. Much has happened since series one in the debate around a universal basic income grant in South Africa. In this series, we unpack some of the debates that have developed. We look at the politics behind the scenes, the numbers that people are arguing about, and we invite captains of industry, intellectuals, academics, and activists to put forward the ideas why the basic income grant is the one policy that we need to take us from where we are as a country to where we need to be. Join me, Isabel Fry, on Rewired, the podcast of choice that allows you to be part of the conversation on a basic income grant. Hello. Today we have episode two of series two of the Basic Income Grant Rewired podcast. I'm Isabel Fry, and today in the studio with me is Hein Marais, all the way from Geneva. Hi, Hein. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the first question which I have to ask is, looking at you, um, a middle-class white guy, what brought you to the position that you have, which um, positions that you have, which have been described as pretty radical over the, the years? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, in, in a nutshell, um, you were asking where was I radicalized. I began at Stellenbosch University of all places in the early 80s. I was studying law. Um, and, uh, you know, you reach a point where you just can't be uh, blind to what's happening around you in an environment where everything's being questioned. And I had the good fortune of having a political philosophy professor, Johan Dierchenar, who um, was very open to debate, no matter where it was coming from. That was, I think, a formative kind of intellectual in input in my, in my thinking and development, this idea that everything is up for debate. And uh, if you make a claim, you have to be able to justify it. And then it's a lot of reading and... Um, the UDF formation happened. We were doing some campaigning around that at the university. It was a real ferment at Stellenbosch, sort of under the covers during that period. And it's at that point I decided I wasn't going to serve in the army. So I left the country to, uh, skip the army, as we used to say back then and came back in 1990. And, uh, I mean, during the intervening period, you just become more and more radicalized and uh, living outside of South Africa aware of different perspectives and ways of looking at the world and realizing that the country that you grew up in and the culture, the values that you were imbued with were completely alien and nuts, to be frank. I grew up as an Afrikaans-speaking kid. So um, you remake yourself, right? And you attach yourself to values and principles that make sense of the world for you, and that's what happened. Thank you. It is quite a, a shocking occurrence, I think, the first time you realize that those norms and values um, are not absolute, firstly, and that there are others. Um, and then you have to start forming your own compass. It's a liberating one. It's totally, no, it wasn't a shock for me at all. It was, it was realizing that there are so many different and more sensible ways of looking at the world and making sense of it. It's never truth. You know, it's not like you're, you're attaching yourself to fundamental truths that you cling to for the rest of your life. You're questioning all the way through. But they come from, I hope, a set of values that don't necessarily change all the times. And those are ones of, for me, fundamentally humanist values that as human beings, we have certain rights and dignities and potentials that we want to fulfill and have the right to do so. And more and more also the sense that as human beings, we don't have the right to, to trample over non-human life as well. This is, you know, these are realizations that come on later. 
Um, so yeah, it's been a it's it's a great journey, and it's still going on. So let's see where I end up in another ten years. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back in ten years' time <laughs> exactly. and have a kind of update. So you came back. You said in nineteen ninety. And then in 1998, you published your first book, South Africa Limits to Change, the Political Economy of Transition. And that looks really at the process of transition. Just for our, our listeners, some sort of highlights of the findings in that book. I mean, what, firstly, what made you, what drew you to writing it as a political economist? The story of how that book got written is a strange one. Um, I got invited to a conference, actually standing in for somebody else who was invited to a conference in Dakar in 1993. And Samira Mian, the Egyptian economist, was organizing it. And um, I, I think I presented a paper on the RDP or some such. It's a pan-African conference. And during break on, on one of the days, he, he herded us into a little room and started telling person by person, which book they were going to be writing. I was a journalist at this point and it came around to me and says, you, you're going to be writing or be the supervisor of a team that's going to write a book in South Africa. And I argued about this and said, there's no way I can do this. I write articles for newspapers and magazines and so on. And he just looked at me, he's a chain smoker with his ghoul bars going. And he just looked at me and said, Maria, you're writing it. So that was sort of a challenge I took up with no experience of writing long form in that, in that way. That's how the book got written over the course of the next three years or so. I went to the SABC to produce AM Live for two years. Just that first little wave of the, the newcomers coming into there I had to put it on ice. And then I finished it two years after that. The findings were, you know, I, I mentioned some here because, um, he, he definitely influenced the perspective that I tried to apply there. And, um, it's a world systems one. It's understanding that what happens in South Africa is not delinked from what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, the process of globalization that was, was, uh, gathering speed here, especially belatedly compared to many other places and trying to think through the impact that that was going to have the adjustments that were being made economically and otherwise uh, to the the likelihood of us building a society that was indeed going to be egalitarian, more um, rights fulfilling, the kind of place that, that people had fought for for decades, right? So I tried to, to take what I thought was a, a realistic perspective of what we could expect to emerge from that. And in the course of writing, of course, the growth, employment and redistribution program was, um, was enacted. Um, and it contradicted so many of the values and objectives, visions that the struggle had oriented itself around, at least in my perspective. And the book, big part of the book is critiquing that direction of policy that we took and um, trying to think of what it might mean for the kind of society and the economy that, that we're going to end up with. And I, I say this with, um, with great sadness in that I was right in many respects in that book. Some of the predictions, they were very grim and dim and, uh, and I'm afraid <laughs> too many of them have been, uh, been realized. Yeah. I think it's really important to chronicle uh, what we see and the growing up, well, living in as a new democracy grows up is both a privilege, but also sometimes quite a burden. But your next big publication was in 2011, and that was South Africa pushed to the limit, the political economy of change. So we have transition and then we have change. 
What was your altered perspective in writing that? And you, of course, know where we're going with that Mm -hmm. question. For me, the difference between couching it as a transition towards change is that the transition for me is a period where flux is is very much um, at hand. There's there's the opportunity to make sharp turns still or sharp-ish turns. And that that period doesn't last very long. And we basically expended it in the 90s, I think, especially when we're thinking about development strategies and macroeconomic policy directions, labor strategies, and so on. I think we we had opportunities in the early to mid-90s to take, I like to just call it to color outside the lines a little bit of orthodoxy, and we didn't take them. And those opportunities, I think, of over the over the years of retelling and the hindsight that's been applied, often been forgotten. We, we, we had a lot more leeway internationally, a lot more indulgence, I think, in a world that desperately wanted to see South Africa succeed. The big institutions like the IMF and World Bank desperately wanted an African success story after what they had done to Latin America and Africa over the previous two decades. And we were there. We were the poster child of, of what was possible. With and it was the end of the Cold War, exactly. so the, the world was ready to be reformed. Exactly. Not necessarily a complete clean slate, but I, I, I still maintain that I think we had more, more opportunities, more options than we ended up deciding we had. Um, so that was the transition period. And I think by the time I, I write Push to the Limit, which is, I start that in about 2008, things have started to settle. You know, the, uh, Whatever is congealing has begun to congeal, and one can see patterns emerging in the uh, the types of economic empowerment that's happening, the, the 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 restrictions around that of who gets access to making money in South Africa, and the terms, the conditions for that access, and what it was doing to the ANC as an organisation as well as a as a massive institution and force, political force. And of course, then trying to see and understand as well what was happening in other sectors of society, what's happening in terms of providing health, education, our labor market, and so on. So it's a more expansive book. It's a big, it runs through several hundred pages. I think anybody who soldiers through it, I, <laughs> I have great respect for it. So it uh, again, it ends up, brings me to a place where I, um, I found myself quite despondent at the end of it because I'd, in the nineties, I'd seen the, um, not the remnants, but political forces that had brought us into the moments of liberation, not being having been dismantled, not been having been sidetracked or or detoured yet, and certainly by the mid two thousands, one doesn't see those forces. The same energy, the same determination, isn't there anymore, and the same capacity, the same the, the same political power could not be brought to bear anymore. The trade union movement is under severe pressure. Civil society has gone in all sorts of directions. And um, you have this real sense of, of rear guard movements, beginning of, of protests starting to happen. We don't yet have uh, fees must fall. We've had, by that point, one successful social movement, and it was the treatment action group around uh, free treatment for HIV, which um, I think is still an absolute high water mark in in post-apartheid activism. What they achieved was amazing, but beyond that, I couldn't really see where this amalgam of energy with vision was going to come from, where, where it could take some organizational for, uh, presence and exert itself on on the state and on the ANC itself. The Communist Party, in my view, was years behind the curve by that point. 
Kusatu was, as I said, fighting for what it had rather than for what it uh, thought it should have. And, um, and it was just this very loose array of, of activism and organizations that were incredibly dynamic and active and determined in what they were doing, but they weren't coming together in a way that could drive history forward. That's sort of where I was at in, in, with push to the limits. It, it ends on a very despondent note. I, I was, I, I attacked and perhaps quite, quite justifiably for just being too despondent back then. Not sure whether I'd, I'd stick with my ending there now if I were to write the book now. Can I hone in on the role of the private sector business uh, in both of those? Because we will come to it in the basic income grant and some of the objections that we see from the, the private sector. But we know that the TRC called big business in to talk about its role. Um, and I think it was a very short session. But how did you see business at the beginning? We know that there were concerns about this massive rush to socialism that might happen. But by 98, I mean, the business was probably already reassured that it made its private agreements that things were not going to be radically altered. But you touch on it in your second book as well. What do you think has been the role of business in blocking the kind of transition that we need? Is it correct to ascribe to them a sort of a greater power than we see on the streets? Or do we sometimes ascribe to them more power than they themselves claim or demand? I mean, this whole concern about wealth will flee the country, et cetera, et cetera. What is your take on how open business was to change and whether there is perhaps more fluidity there, um, even though the markets have now become internationalized? I think if we look back to the early 1990s, there's business, and by business we're talking about the large conglomerates that had had been had merged their, their way into um outsized economic presences in South Africa. I mean, this South Africa had just become too small for them, essentially, which is why we saw all the mergers and takeovers running from the late 70s into the 80s. They were absolutely desperate to be able to take advantage of the globalization that was happening elsewhere in the world. But whilst the apartheid existed, they could not do that, certainly not in the terms that they wished to have. So, Politically, because of the sanctions and the isolation. Because, exactly. Yeah. And, and the financial sanctions really were biting them by, by the, uh, the late 1980s. Things were possible. You know, we were still importing oil, for example. Uh, business deals were still being done, but they, they were expensive to be done and they had to be done in, in, um, very circumnavigatory ways in order to get your, your deal struck and so on. It's just not the kind of way that business wants to operate and, and should have to operate. Um, and I think what happened is that it became very clear early in the 80s already that the apartheid system was simply a, an absolute barrier in capital, South African capital, doing what it does, which is to try and make profit. And of course, um, as the, the fun driving dynamic of capitalism, it's not just always enough to make profit and stick to it. You have to keep growing at it. it it's, it's within the logic of capitalism. You have to grow your business. You have to grow your market because when you stand still, you will get killed by the next guy coming up in your blind side. So apartheid guaranteed cheap 
one might say free labor. So as an input, that was that was the benefit. But in terms of outputs and markets and expansion, there was over uh, the long term, it becomes a complete impediment to to capitalism in South Africa, certainly to to large business enterprises in South Africa. And this is precisely why we see the, the, the overtures happening from the mid eighties onwards and meetings in Lusaka with the ANC. These are, these are visionary business people who are thinking ahead. Where are we going to be in another 10 years, another 20 years? It certainly can't be where we're at right now. The, and, and I think they were very successful at, at achieving that. The big challenge after that is, so what does this new order look like? Like we, we know we can't live with the old, but we have to have a new one that doesn't impose new restrictions and new limits. You know, the fears of nationalization, of course, we're weighing on them. Um, the ability to, to enter the circuitry of opportunities and, and, um, certainly of moving financial capital around, having access to, to capital and moving yourself, your own business models around as well. Like I said, this, this, as a playpen, this was way too small. They were stupendously success, successful at that in penetrating the rest of Africa, in growing, in, in doing what a, a big visionary business model will do. So we see with our telecommunications firms, the mining firms, our, uh, the brewing industry, the alcohol firms. We've seen over the course of the last 20 years, just this remarkable ability to actually go into the, the world at large and, and have your presence felt and become big players in many sectors as well. So they've been, I think, very, very successful at that. The cost of that is that there's been an enormous amount of capital shipped out of South Africa to achieve that. Money that could have been invested here productively um, was not invested productively. What we've seen, frankly, over the last 25 years in South Africa is a massive misallocation of capital because it's simply, it, it has not been in, in any in any way that we, we would, uh, I think, associate with the idea of a developmental state, for example, where there's, there's some understanding that's achieved between the political class and your, your capitalist class, your, your business class of trade-offs, but within a broad vision of what it is that we want to see happen here, which is, for example, not the levels of inequality that we see, not the levels of poverty and immiseration that we see. Like in a true developmental state, the state would have been able to reach certain compromises and, and common understandings about what is, what is the, the minimum that we want to achieve here. And if we cannot live with this, then we can't live with the kind of agreements, the incentives, the subsidies, the, the open doors for portfolio capital to move in and out of the country. This didn't happen in South Africa. We, have, we effectively ended up, I think, giving a pretty much of a free reign to large conglomerate business enterprises in South Africa to act as they saw fit in pursuit of their their main objectives, their, their, their reason for existing, which is to make profits for their shareholders. And we pay the price for it. As, as, as South Africans, I'm not speaking me as, as a middle class South African, but tens of millions of South Africans pay the price for that. And I think this brings us to the universal basic income demand, because I think business is approaching, I should say sectors, parts of business are approaching a point where they again are looking ahead 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line. And those leaders who are, I think, honest and realistic enough will know that 
the social and political reality that constitutes South Africa today is untenable. It's not just morally untenable. It is untenable as a, as a sustainable society. What we, what, what constitutes life here for tens of millions of South Africans is, is not something that can continue without explosions happening. And over the past, over the past decade or so, we've seen this realization hit, um, Let's call it the, the privileged classes, the elites again and again. The, the uh, Arab Springs of, of the 2013, 2014 were an absolute shock, I think, for people living in unequal societies everywhere. Because these were societies utterly barricaded against protest, against any threat from the so-called popular classes. And within a matter of six months, these had erupted. And I think that focused the minds after the 28 to 2010 global financial crisis. I think it, it's been focusing minds more and more that we're, there's a kind of dystopia that's been built in many societies. And dystopias don't last, they collapse. So Hein, I think that we'll, I'd like us to pivot back to that towards the end of this podcast, because just looking at the forces that are preventing change happening, and as you've spoken about business, and it's it's multiple characteristics. There seems to be a contradiction at the heart of that. But I know you like contradictions. I do want us to move on to the basic income grant. And firstly, um, from the, the the writing, I would, I would ask you, looking at your last two analyses of the political economy, they were broad and magisterial works. Now, uh, the, the current book that you've just finished in the balance, the case for a universal basic income grant in South Africa and beyond, although the beyond does open many doors, um, and I'm sure that was pretty deliberate. Would you take us through why you decided to write on a basic income grant? And as you do so, I would ask at the beginning if you could define what you mean by a universal basic income grant, because many people try to manipulate meaning in order to steal the march. So in your book, how do you define the basic income grant? And what made you decide to write on it after um, so many years of looking at the broader canvas? First thing to say is I don't like calling it a grant, which has overtones of, of charity, of, of, of a power imbalance as well. It's a basic income, whether universal or not. And we'll come around to how I then try and frame the demand itself. I think it's a very important shift I'd like us to start thinking about that we don't talk about it as a grant, um, which leads on to ideas of handouts and dependency and so on, which is not what I believe a UBI would be. How did I end up focusing on this? It was perhaps partly almost the natural reaction to the despondency that I felt in 2010 when I felt finished, uh, pushed to the limit, was a sense of looking around and even after the often very inspiring and exciting upheavals around uh, student movements, um, around the emergence of uh, the Treat and Action Group trying to remake itself into Section 27, civil society certainly making its presence felt, but not having the sense of a set of demands that were politically um, coherent and that could drive forward a, a, a process of change. So I, I saw the absence, in a sense, not of agents and agency in South Africa, but of coherence around all the energy and, and anger and, and, and aspirations that were playing themselves out. A manifesto. Single. More than a manifesto. It's, it's, it's about a, a kind of 
critical mass of, of political vision and organization that has to be achieved. And we, we still haven't achieved it. So I started thinking about, well, is there a shortcut? We, we're sitting with, with realities that are absolutely unthinkable once you start uh, going, moving from statistics into people's lives and, and homes and, and neighborhoods. Is there a shortcut perhaps into at least just ameliorating this temporarily? Like what can we do? And, and that's how I ended up thinking, well, maybe a universal basic income is a, a kind of a tool that um, we can at least reduce the depth and the extent of poverty. The more I read about it, I started understanding, of course, it goes beyond that. We can talk about the other benefits that, um, that are empirically, I think, quite, quite uh, reasonable to expect from a universal basic income. And as I, I came at it, I must admit, as a skeptic, I, I was not taken with the idea. Um, it was more a fix, a, a temporary fix that I, was, that, that I was trying to interrogate. And the more I thought and debated, especially with friends on the left who um, opposed the idea for, for all sorts of good reasons, um, I found myself vacillating. Uh, some days I felt in favor, some days I felt more critical. And then I got this sense of kind of like layers of potential, which we had not yet explored properly in thinking about it. At least I hadn't. And that really opened things up for me. Once I started thinking about what does it tell us about the kind of society that we can have um, in a world where work itself, waged work is being transformed, the, the access to it, the terms upon which you can have it, where the idea of what constitute work, constitutes work has to be rethought. We think of work as something that you get paid for and everything else is gravy somehow. So once I started thinking about it in these kind of liberating potentials, these sort of hidden potentials of a UBI, um, it just it set me off. And uh, well, the book's the result mm. of that. So how would you define a universal basic income? Just the sort of quick six characteristics? Sure. That are... it, um, first, it's universal in the sense it goes to everybody. Now we have to decide who is everybody and we can have that discussion. But normally people will say everybody 18 and over. In a utopia, it will be everybody. Kids, everybody should have some kind of income. So I would define it as Everybody 18 years and over have access to a monthly income, uh, which is no conditions attached, which is not targeted. So you're not being told it's, uh, it's only for people who were recently unemployed who will be getting, you get it irrespective of whether you work or not. Um, it has no conditions attached and it's not means tested as well, by which I mean you're not being asked to prove that you're poor enough to deserve it. So it goes utterly beyond the idea that that whole kind of moralistic frame of saying only certain people deserve the deserving poor. That's right. The only only the deserving poor are going to be assisted by us and the rest of us should should look out for themselves. So And to individuals or to households? To, that's to individuals. Debate. Very important to individuals because that way you you get around the issue that happens in households, which is imbalances of power, often gendered power in there. So it goes to individuals. Um it and we know this from the evidence, many studies done around cash transfers and so on. It is very empowering for women who receive it, gives them at least, even if it's a small amount, a, a, a basis of independence and decision-making that they would not necessarily have in their family or household. And it's as simple as that. Very important char uh, characteristic or feature is that it does not replace the other forms of entitlement that we have. This is fundamentally important. And, I, and I'll, we'll, 
very quickly segue from that into the different ideas people have around what a basic income can or should be. It does not replace your access to free education, primary school education, or whatever the other subsidies and support you're getting from the state. And I'm not pretending that what is available in South Africa is enough, but we have more than, than many uh, emerging economies do in the world. And so that, it doesn't defeat all those battles no. that trade unions won no. for workers in terms of benefits and uh, the likes. And, and for people who are out of work as well. So it doesn't replace, it shouldn't replace a pension. It shouldn't replace the, the other social grants that we have. It shouldn't replace your access to free primary health care and so on. So that's a, I don't think, a terribly radical proposition to make. But what you will find is um, in the US, for example, going back to the 1960s, there's been support for this kind of intervention. And it comes from a very different place. It, it, these are um, people who are concerned often implacably opposed to the idea of a social welfare state. Friedman being one exactly, that we Exactly, exactly. Hein, can I take you into how you describe the framing of the UBI? And I'd like to quote from an article that you wrote recently in the Daily Maverick, uh, particularly on, on the framing. Um, and you, you write, in a society such as South Africa, the UBI demand evidently speaks to a near desperate need but how do we frame the demand? Is it an appeal for charity, for the state to grant assistance in extreme circumstances? Is it a demand rooted in the state's duty to guarantee all members of society the means of existence, in French revolutionary Maximilien Robespierre's words? Is it a claim arising from rights inscribed in the Constitution? Or is it a claim for what we are due, for a share of commonwealth? The demand, therefore, pushes against prevailing economic and social orders. It challenges the idea that our dignity and fates are tied to the sale of our labor on whatever terms and prices. It implies fresh ways of thinking about the roles and duties of the state and about the claims that citizens can rightfully make on their state and on the commons. Now, I think that sounds both disruptive, radical, disturbing, and at the same time, completely affirming. When I've thought about a basic income grant, I've thought about it in a way as being um, equalizer for the market failures in terms of distribution of income, because essentially modern societies need income in order to, to operate. So can we think of a future society and labor market evolution without a basic income grant would be my, my one question. But maybe you could just start off by affirming why, given the possibly that the flux of our society, it's so important to bring an open and liberated mind to the understanding of the potential of a basic income grant, rather than to see it as being uh, an attempt to mop up a um, fix. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, look, I think everybody who is remotely aware of of what South Africa is as a society, they would agree that people need income support and that there are millions of people who need this. We can have debates about the terms in which this is provided and so on. The universal income demand, if you like, is pushing that debate a little further than just saying we're helping those who at this point in time need help. And it's once we make that step where we see it as an enduring and ongoing entitlement rather than something, as I say in that quote, is, is granted to people who are deemed deserving of it or needy uh, for it at a certain point. Once you make that step, I think you're, you're in a whole different way of thinking about 
the way a basic income can work in society and what can contribute to society. Because then it becomes not a social policy tool or a fix, not just one little element of your, your social protection net that you're trying to build, but it's, it's other potentials, it's other potential uh, advantages, and it's, I think, transformative potentials start bubbling up to the surface. And we can touch on some of those. The framing that I um, that I talk about there, the, the way we the way we think about the demand, I think is fundamentally important, because if we if we see it as as something that the state grants us, effectively a law that's passed by politicians and bureaucrats, uh, or and then administered by bureaucrats, which grants everybody X number of rands per month and so on on whatever conditions they decide to set. Um, I think we're selling ourselves short. And I, th- I think we're also setting up the potential for a an, an outcome that not only deprives of us of the potential that a UBI can have in society, of, of making of being a part of building a more egalitarian and 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 uh, an equal society, but it's also one that can backfire on us very, very easily as well. So why do I think it's it should not be thought of as a grant, as a handout? Um that's one of the reasons for it. It's it's in order to it's in order to try and unleash or un- unbottle the potential of, of a UBI for making a, a better and more egalitarian society. If we were to frame it as an entitlement, it also means that you're forced into thinking in different terms about things we take absolutely for granted right now. I'll give you two examples. We think, for example, that Having a waged job is basically, it's, it's the passport you need to have in order to have some kind of prospect of a fulfilling life. Forget about just not having, not being poor, but everything you dream about is somehow tethered, linked to having waged work. And this is not just us. This is a model of, of uh, society that um, has emerged as capitalism grew and, and ex- ex- expanded its reach over the past several hundred years. Um, it's common sense for us to think about it in these terms. In fact, anybody who suggests otherwise is sounding very, very weird. Or right? very rich. Not even rich, because it's often, this is one of the strange things about that sort of ideological principle. It's shared by people who haven't had work and probably will never have a proper job in their lives. And it's also shared by the rich who don't feel like they should be handing money, as they would think about it, to people who haven't worked or aren't willing to work. The, the, the bone idle masses in, in some people's uh, perspectives. So I think that's the big thing for us to understand is that we're not just thinking about a UBI here because people are poor, because people need to put food on their table. We're thinking about it because work and what it offers to us is and has changed fundamentally. We live in South Africa in a society which cannot provide decent, remotely decently paid work to more than 40% of the population. This isn't just something that happened over the past five or 10 years. This goes back for decades. Anybody who thinks that this is likely to change over the next 10, 20 years, I challenge to a debate in 10 to 20 years. Full employment can, is can, not going to is come not, this way. It is not a realistic prospect in South Africa. And increasingly, it's going to be a less and less realistic prospect elsewhere in the world. We can look at the, the global trends in, un, in employment rates and we see they're trending down. It's not just about having a job. It's about what you get paid for it. It's about the terms of the job. It's about the kind of work that you're getting. Do you get called up and told to show up for a shift that lasts as long as your supervisor decides it does? So we en- we're entering this world where work is becoming increasingly insecure, 
piecemeal fragmented, broken, poorly paid. And it is not simply a temporary reality. It reflects the way in which trade union movements have been crushed and trampled over the past 20, 25 years in countries around the world. But I'm not convinced that even were they to regain a measure of power, which is a process that is underway, that they'll be able to remake, to recuperate that old world. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.